What next? How will this election turn out? And if our candidates lose, how will it affect us personally? And how will it affect our local, state, and national communities? What next? Will we continue to see an increase in the effects of COVID-19? More cases, more jobs lost. In our schools, more virtual learning or some kind of combination that brings so much stress and anxiety to our teachers and administrators, parents and students alike. What next? How many more businesses will dissolve? How many more deaths will we experience? And then we might be thinking of the normal, what next? Will the treatment work? Will the relationship heal? Will the checking account return to or be able to sustain itself in the black? Will the companionship come? Will the addiction be conquered? Will the depression find its way to light? It seems to me, friends, that within and amidst our own what next, the good faith ancestor in which we might relate would be to the Apostle Paul. And for me personally, I have this love-hate relationship with Paul. For example, I'm not particularly fond of the scripture found in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 34, where he tells that church that the women should remain silent. Pastor Pam and I have had to fight many grievances about that particular instruction a time or two in our ministry journeys. I, I always find it comical, if not maddening, when I show up somewhere and they say, Is your pastor coming? But I tell you, Paul redeemed himself a bit in my book when in Romans chapter 16 verses 1 through 5, he seems to reverse that directive of silent women in the church by referring to both females, Phoebe and Prisca, as his fellow ministers. Ah, the issues with those contradictions when one claims literal interpretation of Scripture. Separate sermon for another day. <laughs> Getting back to Paul. And his series of what next? As one of the worst of the worst, persecutors of the early Christians, I'm sure that prior to his conversion, we could have heard Paul saying, what's next if we allow these fanatically religious people to worship this God, then they'll take over our government. So enough with that. Behead them. Get rid of them. And he did. Numerous times. After Paul's conversion, which by the way should give any of us a clear signal that we can't ever do anything to come between an opportunity to be saved from ourselves. For Paul again, worst of the worst, had this conversion experience and then his what next moments took on exponential growth. What new church should I start next? What person should I groom next to follow in my footsteps and join me in ministry? What's the next instruction I should give or letter I should write? What next? When are they going to put me in jail again? Stone me again. After all, he received 40 lashes a total of five different times. And Paul, like us, had his own daily challenges and questions of what next. All the times of weariness when he said he suffered for the sake of his ministry. All the sleepless nights 
Time spent in hunger and thirst and fasting, dreary nights in the cold and nakedness. And then how he loved those churches he started and how he experienced for those churches that he founded the tremendous pressures and concerns for those people of God. See, friends, this morning's passage that Kenny read is all about not losing heart in our walk with God. Not becoming depressed was that translation. Discouraged or faint-hearted. Not throwing in the towel and quitting or giving up on the wholeness or the holiness of life. And given all that we've just considered about Paul, if anyone would have known what the temptation to lose heart would feel like, I think it might have been him. He admitted there were times when he and his co-workers were very close to losing heart. At the very beginning of this second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, For we do not want to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so we were despaired even of life. But even though he almost lost heart at times, he didn't. And the words at the beginning of our passage this morning are very significant. Though we are not depressed, another translation says, Therefore we do not lose heart. These words are not just significant, brothers and sisters, but they're practical. Because he goes on then in those next three verses to tell us how we go about not losing heart. Listen, I felt drawn to this passage for a long time. And especially in these past several months, because I believe that many of us today have lost heart or are just about to do so. Perhaps you're among them. I've been close in these last several months. Sometimes the pressures and trials of life can be overwhelming, can't they? It can feel like that everything in life's fighting against us. Maybe you're joining us this morning from wherever you are feeling so weary of soul that you just don't think you'll take another step. Maybe you're just barely holding it together. And you feel like that if life drops you just one more thing on your plate, you'll break. And if that describes any of us today, I think God has something really important to tell us from this past passage of Scripture. And in truth, another reason I'm drawn to this Scripture is because I've personally put this passage and what it says to do to test in my own life. There have been some dark, troublesome, and sleepless nights in my life in which I've gotten up out of bed or turned over to get my iPad in previous years. And I've searched for some hope in Scripture. Even your pastors do things like this, or at least this one does. I Google things like scriptures to read when I'm overwhelmed. Scriptures about anxiety or worry. Scriptures about peace and calm. Scriptures about hope. Pastors Pam and Kenny, do you all ever do that? Then sometimes we end up preaching on them. And in this search, this is one of the scriptures I'm always drawn to. It's allowed me to find some sleep and rest. And it's given me hope in the midst of trying times. And many times when I felt like I wanted to quit... God's used these words to give me new strength and a fresh sense of hope. Not losing heart in the midst of our Christian life comes as a result of some habits of faith. 
So let's look at these habits in these verses. In verse 16, Paul affirms, even though our outward selves are perishing, our inward selves are being renewed day by day. You and I have two aspects to our beings, friends. There's the sense in which they're going in two opposite directions at times. There's the outward self, which is our body. It's a part of each other's being that we can all see. And then there's the inward self, which only we and God know. Outwardly, we grow older, if we're lucky enough to live long enough to do so. Outwardly, we sometimes act out because, well, we're humans. And we act out sometimes. Outwardly, we may see, be seen as loud and boisterous, which really is part of our cover-up for being insecure or feeling threatened. Outwardly, we're affected by politics and economics and disease and even exclusive definitions of who God is or closed circles of religious groups. These are things that show decay. And indeed, there are things that have a shelf life, either literally in our physical being where all of us will die someday, or figuratively in moments of despair that eventually will pass us by in one form or another. And then Paul reminds us of our internal selves, which can and are renewed day by day with each new dawning. And in abiding God who draws us near for comfort, for hope, for healing, it is this light, if we choose to walk towards it, that can transform us on the inside and remind us that no matter what happens in this world or in our life, God is God is God, and God never, ever will leave us. No matter who wins the election. In verse 17, Paul calls our worries or afflictions light. I'm going to talk about my hate relationship with Paul here again. I think that can seem like an insensitive thing to say when we're in the midst of affliction. It doesn't feel light at all. In fact, it feels downright burdensome and heavy and almost unbearable. And if that's not bad enough, Paul calls them momentary. They seem at the time as if they're anything but momentary. In fact, they seem unending and unrelenting when we're in the midst of them. And I don't know about you, but I'm almost offended by his flippidness of what is anything but light and calm in my life. Until I care enough to read on about why he'd make such a claim. It's because Paul's been through it, friends. When we study the life of Paul, dealing with a world pandemic would be like a walk in the park. Much less the whining about wearing a mask or keeping socially distanced or avoiding having parties or sacrificing in-person church. Paul had been beaten, put in jail, mocked. And while the details of his death is unknown, tradition holds and it's very likely that he too was beheaded. So after his conversion, Paul's what next questions and anxieties had to have been through the heavenly roof. And to be sure, he writes about difficult days. And yet, when we see him connecting with the divine, when he realigns his purpose, when he gets clarity about who he is and whose he is, Paul learns and practices and then writes to his churches about how to keep our eyes on what really matters. 
And what matters, my brothers and sisters, is not about our decaying bodies or our minds or even our nation. What matters most is a decaying heart or a decaying soul. And while I believe that we are called to a prophetic witness and to be active prophetic doers in the world, achieving that balance of what we can do and when we can do it effectively in a way that doesn't decay our heart and our soul is a delicate balance indeed. And we won't find this balance, I don't think, left to our own decisions. That's where God comes in if we choose to let God come in. And that's when God shows up and shows out through us. As we move to verse 18, the verb that Paul uses to describe what we are to do means to view intently or to keep one's eye on. It's a form of verb that speaks to a continuous action of habit. Literally all that he says in the other two verses about the outward body and the inward body assumes that we are not continuously looking at the decay on the outside of ourselves, on the seen things that everyone else sees and feels like they have to pontificate about or form an opinion about us. But it is about looking at the unseen things. The things that God and us know about. And yes, my fellow LGBTQ brothers and sisters, if you decide today is your day to come out, know that God has always known who you are, loved who you are, and will celebrate and walk with you on that journey. I think another great example of what Paul's trying to say to us is found in the experience of Peter. Do you all remember the story from Matthew when... Jesus came walking to the disciples and they were in a boat in the middle of a storm and they were terrified. And Jesus greeted them with the words, Be of good cheer. Flippant. Be of good cheer. It's I. Don't be afraid. And you remember that Peter still in his fear said, Lord, if it's you, if it's you, command these waters to, to stop and command me to come to you in the water. And Jesus did. And Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. The point being that as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he did all right. But the Bible tells us that when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. He was afraid again, walking on water afraid. Come on now. But it's because he took his eyes again off God through Jesus and put his eyes on the world. I think that's a good example of how it requires diligence and intention for us to keep our eye and our focus on the right thing, indeed the right person, in the midst of our storms. See, when Paul says we should not make a practice of keeping our focus on things which are seen, I think he means the aspects of trials and afflictions and challenges that seem to destroy our outward selves. Look, we realize that Difficult and painful things really happen. And we need to treat them in an intelligent, realistic way. I don't believe we can pray those things away. But we certainly can acknowledge that God's with us on the journey. And they can't be our main focus. They're not to be what we look at most intensely. 
that the things that we concentrate on and we devote some attention to, but if that's all, if that just takes us over, we'll sink under the weight of it and we will lose heart. Instead, Paul says, look, focus on the unseen things, the things that are eternal. And the only thing I know in my life that we as believers can count on as eternal is the presence and the amazing grace and the unconditional love and an eternal God who calls every single one of us and daggone it, every single one of them as beloved child. In our own What Next months, Paul reminds us to grab hold of ourselves and make ourselves focus on the unseen things. Because those are the things that are eternal will never change. Those are the things we're to anchor our hopes to in the storms of life. They're the things that will sustain our spirits in times of trial. Holding tightly to God's assurance and promise to God's hope and God's love. When we're in the time of trial and testing, we need to get away. Get alone in whatever way that works for us. Outside, in the car, in a room, in a church. And perhaps pray this prayer. So will you pray with me, friends? God, help us see what, what is important in our trials and challenges. We need your wisdom, God, to, to deal with the realities of those difficult things that we face. But help us keep our main focus on your eternal truths that we can only see with the eyes of faith. Help us to know, O oh God, and help us to put our trust in what Your Word says are the unseen things that remain true in the midst of any trial or challenges we have. Amen. That's the part that's entirely up to us. Our decision to keep our focus on eternal things in the midst of those trials. In the midst of disappointment and discouragement in our own lives and in our own ways of doing ministry. In the church I grew up in, in Pikeville, there was a woman named Brenda Franklin. And she sang a lot of solos. And one of her selections became a favorite of everyone. Brenda was sort of known for singing this song. And I think it could be a great interpretation of this lesson from Paul. What next? What next with the election? What next with the pandemic? What next with life? Well, I don't know about any of that. About those things that are easily seen that can weigh us down. And yet the unseen... Yet ever abiding presence of God, that I'm sure of. I'm sure of it. And it is my prayer, especially in this next month or so, with an impending election and a growing pandemic, it's my prayer, friends, that you too, you too will feel the abiding presence of God and that indeed you will find calm. Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. 
We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.